Good morning. Uh, our passage for the series on twisted verses today is going to be from Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. And I'm going to read that in context. It's on uh, page 982 if you happen to be using one of the Bibles that's provided in the back of our, our room here. Uh, page 982, Philippians 4. I'm going to read uh, verses 10 through 13. In God's providence, there's another 4.13 in the Bible, 1 Timothy 4.13, where Paul exhorts Timothy to not forsake the public reading of Scripture. And so that's why we do this. Follow along with me as I read Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking about being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. May the Lord bless the reading of his, and preaching of his word. Amen. Well, if you're a guest this morning, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors as well of the church, and we've been going through this series uh, called Twisted, which is we're taking various passages of scripture that have sometimes been misunderstood, and we're trying to bring clarity to them. So, but I want you to know up front that um, I have, I am guilty of taking passages out of context to serve my own agenda. And this is how, uh, back before my wife and I had our own children, we, uh, we used to babysit a little bit and we, we babysat a, a family, uh, not in this church, um, but, uh, that had many young children. And uh, after about a couple of hours with a lot of rambunctious boys that are under the age of five years old, you can get quite exhausted. And so I decided that we were going to play the game Job's Three Friends. And so I said, kids, come around here. Let's sit down on the floor and let's, uh, let's play Job's Three Friends. And they were all really excited about this. They came and sat down wondering what this game was, and they'd never heard of it before. And I said, okay, everybody sit down. And so the three boys came, and they sat down on the floor there, and I sat on the couch. And I said, now I'm Job, all right, and you are the three friends. So you're Bildad, you're Zophar, and you're Eliphaz. All right. And they said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, I got to read the passage first. All right. So I said, now, Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Timnite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They had made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. That is a true story. And my wife, Belly, laughed quite a bit. They didn't understand it at all. They didn't think that was a very fun game to sit there for seven, seven days and seven nights and be absolutely quiet. 
Well, this morning's passage is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And in our culture, this verse is sort of a rallying cry. Um, It's a, uh, a an encouragement toward exerting your strength and doing your best and trying your hardest to accomplish something great, like maybe running a marathon or climbing a mountain or winning a championship or perhaps finishing the remodel of a kitchen. In more recent years, Tim Tebow, who I'm not meaning to pick on him. I have great respect for him from all that I've learned about him and believe him to be a brother in Christ. But he has referenced this verse a number of times as he's worn it in his eye black as he's played games on the football field. And uh, even mixed martial arts fighter John Jones has Philippians 4.13 tattooed straight across his chest, assuming that Jesus is there to help him punch people in the throat and put them down. <laughs> so Paul, is Paul really speaking about things like that? And can that verse really be used to help us win championship football games or break people's ankles? In fact, if you look at the context as we're going to do this morning, I don't think Paul is speaking about winning anything. He's talking about losing everything and still being content. So in this, this passage is not really a clarion call to go out and accomplish some great feat of strength, but it's a beautiful reminder for us to trust God in the midst of the ups and downs of a life that's given fully to the cause of Christ. David Helm put it this way. He said, if we read just a few verses on either side, we realize that this verse is part of Paul's discussion about suffering in jail. He's talking about survival. He's not talking about promotions and game-winning shots, but about enduring hardship so that the gospel may advance. So Paul's not saying here that through the strengthening of Jesus Christ, we can overcome all obstacles and succeed in all things. What Paul is saying is that through the strengthening of Christ, we can press forward and endure as we seek to advance the gospel, even if it means our own death. This verse does not infer that by having faith in Christ that we're going to achieve or prosper in all that we aspire to do, but rather that in Christ we can find the sufficient comfort and support that we need to carry on through all adversity. This verse is about having the strength given to us by Christ to be content when we're facing those moments in life when physical resources, emotional resources, spiritual resources even, are minimal. It's about having faith in the God who provides for us, the God who is sovereignly in control of every circumstance of our lives, the God who knows our needs and has promised to meet them all in Christ. So if you get put in prison... For preaching Christ, you're beaten, and you learn to live with little food or possessions or comfort or support, and you find yourself content because you have Christ, feel free to quote this verse as applying to your situation. It's not the only situation in which you can quote the verse, as I hope to unpack this morning. So let's do that now. We're going to talk about the struggle for contentment the object of contentment, and the pathway to contentment. First of all, the struggle for contentment. If you can't tell, I believe contentment is the main theme of the passage. Paul uses the word there 
in verse 11 when he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So the struggle for contentment. Now, contentment is a struggle, admittedly. And Paul admits it here in this passage that it is, in fact, a struggle. It is a struggle to be satisfied with the place in life that God in his providence has led you and to be satisfied such that you're not feeling any need for circumstances to change in order to be content. All right, so we're defining contentment this morning as a satisfaction in Christ that leads you to be able to endure in the best and the worst of situations without circumstances changing. You can still be satisfied. You can still be content. Now, there are some things in our lives that we tend to look to for contentment. And if we don't have them, we excuse our discontent, don't we? For instance, difficult circumstances. If we encounter a particular trial, we might say something like, oh, if you only knew what I was going through. We may not say it out loud, but we think it. And therefore, we justify ourselves in our feelings of discontent or difficult people. Oh, if you only knew who's making my life really hard right now. Or maybe it's the absence of some support, some help, some assistance. I'm really lonely. I'm really discouraged. There's no one around that seems to care or help. And not only might you be going through a bad time, you're facing a difficult circumstance with some difficult people or the absence of any support or help. But not only is that your lot or circumstance at the time, but you're also caring for people who are going through the similar things as well. Now, if we've ever used, or if you've ever used any of those to excuse your discontent, let me introduce you to Paul as he writes the letter to the Philippians, because he is facing all of these things. He's facing difficult circumstances. He's facing difficult people. He's facing the absence of support and help. And not only is he going through hard times like this, but he's also trying to help and encourage and care for people who are going through similar things that he's going through. For instance, Paul has people who are seeking to afflict him. Now he's in jail in Rome on house arrest for preaching the gospel. We see that show up again and again. It shows up at earliest in verse 12 in the letter of chapter 1, if you want to flip back there, chapter 1, verse 12, where he says that he is, as he's talking about his imprisonment, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is being put in jail, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard in Rome and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So, He's in jail. Not only is he in jail, but he's also having people who are seeking to cause him a hard, give him a hard time while he's in jail by preaching the gospel, which Paul is disturbed by that. But he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and revelry, but others from goodwill or rivalry, not revelry rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So he's got people who are seeking to give him a hard time and be a rock in his shoe while he's sitting in jail. 
And the church that he's writing to is also facing similar opposition to him, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, where he is encouraging the church to not be frightened, verse 28, and anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and and that from God, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged, verse 30, in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he's got the church facing these struggles. He's facing these struggles. He's burdened to help the church in the midst of his own struggle to fight his own contentment. The church is also struggling with internal pressure, not just external pressure. As he talks about in chapter 2, evidently he's having to encourage them to be humble and united with each other. There's some division in the church. So he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, which is exactly what Paul's doing as he's writing this. He's not throwing a pity party for himself. He's not saying, oh, poor me. He's saying, listen, I love you all and I want you to be united. So consider, your se- consider others more important than yourself. He's also soon to be losing his closest friend, Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So he's going to go ahead and give up his best friend, his, his most faithful co-laborer in many ways, Timothy, to go on to Philippi ahead of him and he's willing to let him go for a while and then hope to follow later on. You remember how Paul got this letter in the first place was a man by the name of Epaphroditus brought it. We see that in chapter 2. And Epaphroditus evidently got sick while he was there with Paul. And Paul was getting ready to send him back to the church at Philippi. And, um, and God had spared his life. And Paul was incredibly thankful for that. Chapter 2, verse 27, he says, Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And we see from chapter 4 that he's had very few churches that have supported him. In fact, the Philippians were one of the main ones, but even at first they didn't do so initially, but then they came around and helped him. He said in verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So he didn't have a lot of church support for his mission work. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So they were helpful to him, but he didn't have a ton of support. He had this church backing him and helping him. So here you have Paul, (laughs) In a very difficult circumstance, in jail, with people afflicting him, and the real possibility that he could be executed, chapter 1, verse 19 through 23, he talks about that. That there is a possibility that he would depart and be with Christ, which is far and away better. But he was convinced that he wouldn't die, that this house arrest sentence wouldn't lead to execution, that he would be released and be restored to be able to go to see the Philippians and other churches that he had planted. So he's facing the struggles with the church at Philippi. He's facing opposition from his opponents. He's facing the fact that he's in jail. He's facing the illness of his closest friends and the possible loss of one of them. Very few churches support. I mean, if there's ever justification to be discontent, couldn't the Apostle Paul play that card? 
I mean, really, none of us have ever had that little support. And yet we have had, we have much, much, I would argue, probably more grumbling. And that's, that's why Paul can write with, I think, a great deal of integrity in chapter 2, verse 14, when he says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. But Paul knew it was a struggle. That's why he uses these three words. I have learned. I have learned. He says that several times in our passage, most immediately in verse 12 and in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. So this doesn't come without a lot, I would argue, of life experience. Where Paul has seen circumstances show themselves to be unable to provide contentment. Whether it be people or particular circumstances externally or a church situation or an absence of conflict or problems. He's seen that all of that, because he he acknowledges here in this passage that he's seen good times too. It's not just the bad times where he's been forced to learn contentment. It's also been in the good times because he's found that even in the good times, when things are going great, when things are going well, even then he's found himself discontent. So he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, which is where he is now. But he says, I also know how to abound. I know when things are sweet, like when I planted this church, when I came to Philippi and met a girl named Lydia and preached the gospel and the Lord opened her heart. And then God did a 180 in that city. And then I got sent to jail for obstructing the local commerce because one of the fortune tellers that got converted and I'm in jail, Acts 16, and I'm singing hymns and a jailer gets saved. It's like, I know what it is to abound. I know what it is to see God use me to work, to advance the gospel, to see a church planted, a healthy church too. Philippians were, were, were a great church in many respects. So he knew what it was to abound, but he says, I also know what it is to face hunger. He says in verse 12, I know what it is to face plenty. I know what it is to face hunger. I know what it is to live in abundance. And I know what it is to live in need. And he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Obviously assuming that contentment cannot be found in plenty or abundance. See, don't we think that? We think that. We think that if we had more than we currently have or less of the trouble, we could be more content. It's a lie. It's not true. If you try it, you'll see. And Paul's trying to get out in front of us here and say, listen, having plenty or having a, and having abundance or having need and having hunger, those things are irrelevant to the topic of contentment. Circumstances are not where we're going to find it. So where do we find it? Second point, the object of contentment. 
So we looked at the struggle. Now let's talk about the object. And that's where Paul talks about Jesus in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So contentment is not found in a circumstance. It's found in a person. What made Paul able to be indifferent to whether he had things that made his circumstances easier or not was to have a focus on something other than his circumstances, namely Christ and the strength that is provided through him. Now, the question then becomes, how can Christ, Jesus, be the source of contentment? How can he be? Why is he a source of strength in plenty and adversity, in abundance and need? I think here's part of the answer. Because Jesus and his purposes and promises do not change even though circumstances do. Circumstances are going to change. They're going to go up and down. Plenty's going to be here one day. One's going to be here the next. Abundance then need. It's just the way life is under the sun. But Jesus and his purposes and promises, they do not change. Philippians gives us a ton of these purposes and promises. Let me just give you an overview just in this letter alone. Jesus is going to bring com- to completion everything that he began in his people, Philippians 1.6. The gospel is going to advance whether a A1 missionary sits in jail or not, Philippians 1.12 and 13. The opposition that he is receiving is going to lead to he and the Philippian church's ultimate salvation, chapter 1, 28 and 29. God is at work in us. Chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Our righteousness is in Christ. Chapter 3, 1 through 11. Christ has made us his own. Chapter 3, verse 12. Our citizenship is in heaven. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And when he returns, we're going to be transformed and all things will be subjected to him. Our names are in the book of life. Chapter 4, verse 3. And God has promised to meet all of our needs. Chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. If that matters to you more than your circumstances, you will be content. If it doesn't, you won't. So see how sometimes we can know those things and still be discontent. We can know all these great promises. But if you don't love that and desire that, if Christ isn't your great joy which is why Paul says over and over in this letter to rejoice in the Lord. If Christ is our great joy and Christ is our great hope and Christ is our great goal, we can be content because these things matter to us more than circumstantial realities rather than whether we have everything or don't have everything we want. If we know that Christ is going to bring to completion what he began in us, that the gospel is going to go forward, that the opposition to the gospel is not going to stop its spread or our ultimate victory, that God is at work in us, that Christ is our righteousness, that Christ has made us his own. We're never going to be forsaken. Our names are in the book of life. Our citizenship is already in heaven. Mark it down. We're going there. We're going to be transformed. All of creation is going to be subjected to him. God's going to meet all of our needs on our way to get us there. 
If we are convinced of that, if we believe that, we can be content. We can be content. Because those very promises that are even contained in this letter will be the means by which Christ himself strengthens us to endure. And Paul knew that. Paul's writing this. And as he's writing all these things that I've just mentioned, there's welling up in his soul deep comfort. He knows that Christ is going to bring the work he began to completion, that that everything that he's promised is going to be fulfilled. And therefore, he can rest completely in Christ in the face of a lot of obstacles and a lot of challenges. Now, that's not to say, and that doesn't mean, that we shouldn't love and care for each other as the church. Sometimes we think, well, you know, Jesus is all we need. You know, if we can just, and at the deepest level, that's absolutely true. All right? I'm not undermining anything I've been preaching here. But I'm just saying, Paul gushes with love for this church as he's writing. And is immensely thankful for how they have cared for him and supported him. In fact, sandwiched on both sides of this verse, verse 13 is verse 10 and verse 14. Let's look at both of those. So verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now let's look back at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's happy in Jesus that someone cares. And then verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So here's a guy who can, who's content. He doesn't need their gifts. He says that in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Well, at one level, he's really in need. But at another level, he's not. You see? He's saying, I'm not in need ultimately. Whether you love me or not, I can be content. Because Jesus loves me. But it's really nice to have you all loving me. All right, Paul's not some super spiritual guy who's like, oh, I just need Jesus. He's all I need. He's all I want. I don't need the church. I don't need the love of the church. I don't need help. Come on. He needs help. He knows that. But he's willing to go without it if necessary, if it will not hinder them. But he's grateful to them. He, that's one of the main reasons he wrote the letter in the first place was to send a big old thank you back to the church. Saying, thanks for the gift. Thanks for Epaphroditus. Thanks for not forgetting me. Thanks for remembering. Thanks for coming to my aid. Thanks for always being faithful to me. Thanks for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he writes in chapter one. So I'm just saying that let's not forget that we can be content. We are, we are to be content in Christ and not to need each other, but nevertheless, at another level, we need each other. We need each other. And we need to help each other and come alongside. That's being content in Christ and knowing that you can do all things through him who strengthens you doesn't mean that you don't need friends. So that is the object of contentment, Jesus. Now let's talk finally about the path to contentment the pathway to contentment. And I believe we find that pathway carved out for us in the verses that precede the text that we're preaching this morning. 
chapter 4, verse 4 through 9. You know, the text that, that I'm preaching is 4, 10 to 13. And we're going to go back through chapter, to chapter 4, verse 4, which is where I think Paul picks up with, a, with, a, uh, with his closing sort of exhortations to the church. And there's three, three parts of this pathway toward contentment. And I want us to look at each one of them briefly. Here's the first one. So if we want to be content, if we want to know, okay, how do we do this? How do we, he said, it's one thing to know you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It's another thing to say, okay, what do I need to believe? How do I need to think? How do I need to live so that the power of Christ is supplied to me? Because it's really clear. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him means he's believing things about Christ. It's a faith issue. And his faith is grabbing hold of Jesus and Jesus is supplying strength and power to him through his faith. So we want to say, what do we need to be believing? What do we need to be thinking if we're going to be content in Christ in plenty and in need? Here's the first one. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say Rejoice. Now he says this back in verse three, verse chapter three, verse one again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? To rejoice in the Lord always? Well, I think we get part of the answer. Sandwiched between chapter 3, verse 1 and chapter 4, verse 4, where he says rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. It means to see Jesus as surpassingly valuable so that your circumstances grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Remember, he's writing this. He's writing chapter 4, verse 4, right on the heels of chapter 4, verse 3 where he's talking about a squabble in the church. But he says in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life, rejoice in the Lord always. You see what, I'm, see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm thinking about names in the book of life. I'm thinking I'm going to heaven. I'm thinking all is well between me and Jesus, and that my eternal destiny is secure. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's not changing. We know that from Revelation. Our, our, the names of God's people have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's not going anywhere. So he says, in the midst of all this conflict between people, I'm wanting these ladies to agree in the Lord. They're not agreeing but their names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul has an utter detachment, it seems. Not an indifferent detachment. He cares about this 
disagreement getting fixed. But he's like, if it doesn't get fixed, no big deal. No big deal. It's not going to change the fact that I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. So as D.A. Carson puts it then, the ultimate ground of our rejoicing can never be our circumstances. Because <laughs> none of these circumstances may get fixed. And Paul knows it. He has hope that they will. He has hope that he'll get out of jail. But he may not. We know he did. Or actually he didn't. But if the ultimate ground of our rejoicing can never be our circumstances, if our joy derives primarily from our circumstances, then when our circumstances change, we're going to be miserable. Our delight must be in the Lord himself. That is what enables us to live with joy above our circumstances. And if you remember the first time Paul visited Philippi, I already referred to it when he was put in prison in Acts 16. He's singing hymns. In prison, that was a separate time than when he's writing this. He's writing this from Rome. He's not in. That was this is pr- as he's planting the church at Philippi. But he's just able to gather his heart, to gather his mind, to focus on Jesus, to bring his heart into a state of rejoicing because the ultimate ground of rejoicing is not his circumstances; it's Christ Himself. So that's the first one: rejoice in Christ. Secondly. Depend on Christ. Depend on Christ. And we see this in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You could say you, you will be content. The peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus is contentment. So prayer leads to peace, Paul says. An anxious heart will be a discontent heart. So Paul takes his burdens, which he know will lead him to discontentment, and he carries them to the burden bearer. And he also realizes that ingratitude will feed his discontentment, so he chooses to be thankful. Right? He reminds us that we need to fill our prayers with thanksgiving as we make our requests known to God. Make sure you include stuff like, thank you for writing me in the book of life. Thank you that my citizenship is in heaven. Thank you that you're going to bring to completion everything you've promised to do in me. Thank you that you're at work in me. Thank you that my righteousness is found in Christ. God, if you choose not to change the circumstances, that's not going to change my joy in you. That's the way Paul talks. The whole first chapter, read chapter one. He comes out of the gate with thanksgiving for this church. He doesn't start, first of all, by telling them all that they're doing wrong. And, you know, he doesn't start with chapter two. You know, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. No, he starts at chapter one. I'm thank, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Sounds like he's a grateful person. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse nine, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I mean, he busts out of the gate with thanksgiving and prayer and then he comes back in chapter four and says, by the way, do it. Which is why he can write in chapter four, verse nine, whatever you've seen in me or heard from me, put it into practice. He's not a hypocrite. He's doing everything he's asking them to do, even in the very letter as he's writing. So if you're discontent this morning or struggling with it, are you praying with gratefulness? 
Are you trying to shoulder your life or are you casting those burdens on him? So depend on Christ. Rejoice in Christ, depend on Christ, and finally live for Christ. Live for Christ. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, we sometimes take that verse and we say, you know, okay, it's all these little components. It's think about this, think about this, think about this. Let me ask you this. What is true? Who is honorable? Who is worthy of praise? Not what, but who? Who's lovely? Who's commendable? Jesus. Think about Christ. So whatever is true is true because of Jesus. <laughs> and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. He says, think about that, live in that, dwell on that. And then verse nine, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice it. And the God of peace will be with you. You will have contentment. So he's saying, think about the gospel and then give your life for the gospel like me. That's what this passage is about. Live for Christ Give it all away. Or as chapter 2, verse 21 says, seek the interests of Jesus Christ, as he's talking about Timothy. So our lives must be devoted to Christ and the advancement of his gospel, or we will never have contentment. The fame and glory of Christ and the advance of his kingdom must be uppermost in our lives, not our own comfort, convenience, and circumstances. Isn't this what Jesus says in Matthew 6? You're worried about all this stuff, da 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 Look, I'm going to tell you how to be content. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Seek it first. Live for Christ. Live for me. And notice he says practice leads to peace. Actually doing it. What you have learned, verse 9, and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So we might know it, but if we're not doing it, don't expect contentment. Okay? So rejoice in Christ, depend on Christ, and live for Christ. What are we thinking about? What are we dwelling on? How are we living? So it, comes us, it, it brings us back full circle then. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Meaning if you are rejoicing in Christ, dependent on Christ... And living for Christ, Christ is going to come and show himself to be entirely and abundantly adequate for everything you need as you live for his glory. As you love your wife, as you love your brothers and sisters in the church, as you love your husband, as you love your kids, as you serve in your vocation, as you reach out with the gospel, as you give your life away day in and day out in the simple things and in the big things, most of them entirely mundane and simple. But as you do that, Christ, as, you, as the object of your rejoicing, as the object of your dependence, and as the object and goal of your life, will strengthen you and help you and bless you. And may that be our, our corporate testimony as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on this very challenging passage. Father, as I studied it this week, you know how it just absolutely stripped and devastated me. 
and helped me see and helped, and I trust all of us see this morning, just how, how, how woefully inadequate um, and how quick we are to claim discontentment and justify it. When in fact we have so much to be thankful for and so much to be content in, namely Jesus himself. So would you come by your spirit and apply this word to our hearts and to our lives for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom? We ask in his name. Amen. I'd like to ask um, Grace and Faith Long to please come up and stand beside me here. In just a moment, we're going to have the privilege of watching you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection because having trusted in him, they too have experienced the death, burial, and resurrection. I was thinking this morning, it would be sad if... Um, the only people that were saved in Owensboro or in connection with our church would be our own children. That would be sad because we want to have an impact for God on our community. But what if only God only saved people outside of our church?